All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Warrior Mindset and Motivation Podcast. I am your host, retired Army Sergeant First Class Eric Castillo, and I'm also a life coach at Zimi Wellness Center in Indigenous Sovereignty. So switched up the times today because like how I like to do, I accommodate to whoever comes on, I accommodate to their schedule. Typical times are Thursday, 12 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. But if the person I have coming on has to do a different time, a different whatever goes on, then, you know, I make that work for them so that way they fit and it, and it works out to accommodate them because if I don't accommodate them, well, they ain't going to come on. So, I mean, I got to I gotta make it work. So today I got a Marine Corps. That's like another Marine. Luckily, I had, I'm on like a Marine trend. Like I said it with the last guy I was with, with Matt, when he came on, he was a Marine. And then the person, so it's like I'm, I'm batting a thousand right now, three for three on Marines. So apparently Marines just apparently need to speak these past couple of weeks about whatever's going on. So another Marine here. Um, his name's Tim. He's actually a licensed psychologist. So we're going to get a different spin on things. So as we normally hit the service and deployments and transition and stuff and how his transition went, but he's going to spin it up and throw some clinical stuff out there, some psychological stuff and what actually happens with veterans when we go through our trials and we go through our dark times, like this right here for people in the military, know this phrase, this right here. And I'm going to do the, this right here is the subject matter expert over here. He is. He that's that's what it is. I had to do the make some reverse. So I had to make sure I point the right way. But uh, <laughs> but um, I'm going to give the floor to him here and he's going to go ahead and talk about himself and what he did in the Marines and, you know, whatever, however many crayons he ate and what was his favorite color and did it taste like chicken and things like that. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, Tim, go ahead, take it away and let everybody know about you and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I will say the red crayons happen to be a delicacy uh so i appreciate the shirt collar just gonna throw it out there so uh, so yeah so my name is tim swagger and as you've already said you know i am a marine combat veteran um so just a little bit about my history i don't want to give you guys a bunch there because i want to focus on a different area uh but so i actually enlisted and served in 2006 to 2010 uh during that time so my family happened to be very egotistical uh, we needed our own branches. Um, so my older brother was serving in the Air Force at the time. And not only did I go to the Marine Corps, but my twin sister actually went to the Army. And so our first deployments as a group, we actually deployed within two weeks of each other, all of us. Um, wow. So, yeah. So my brother went to Cutter, my twin went to Baghdad, and I went to the Helmand River Valley in Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, jeez. So like, yeah, just, you know, quality time. Um so, but I completed two tours while I was there. Um, the first one, I was a security element for MARSOC. And then when I got back from that deployment, I actually opted to go back to 3-8, which was my battalion. And about five months later, I was right back in the same province in Afghanistan mm. with them. And so really that all those military experiences, those opportunities were very unique. Um, but with that said, I actually went to the military with the whole idea of never going to college. Um, that oh, wow. extremely backfired. Uh, well, it, it, mine was the opposite. Mine was, Hey, I'm going to college four years done. Knowing that shit turned into 17 and a half. So, <laughs> yeah. So it just, it's just the way that stuff works out. Right. Um, you mm -hmm. don't plan for that. Um, but I will say for me, you know, when I came back from my second deployment, I struggled a lot. Um, and I'm going to talk about a concept today that's a little bit different. I'm, I'm probably certain to a degree that most of the people in this podcast probably have not heard of the construct of moral injury. Um, but I really struggled with that and uh, PTSD and those pieces. And so when I came home, part of the reason I ended up getting into psychology in the first place was I was honestly trying to figure out what was going on. Um, I, I didn't understand why I felt really numb and detached and removed from most of the people that were around me and honestly didn't care. Um, I was happier that way um, and drinking pretty persistently really from about 2010 to 2012 range. So that was kind of my, my start out, if you will, in the psychology realm. Mm, okay. Well, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty neat. And I was thinking too, as you were talking, as you went from one deployment to another, um, and I don't know if this happened to you, like me, I went to Afghanistan three times. And it was all back to back to Kandahar, the same place. And it's funny how it changes, but it looked the same. But then actually, like, I actually ran into someone that remembered me 
from 2003 when I went the first time. And then when I went back wow. in 2010, they remembered. And then when I went back in 2013, I met someone from 2010 and they actually remembered me still. So it's, it's, I don't know if you've had that. And it was kind of neat to be like, they're like, Castillo? And I was like, yeah. They go, oh, you've leveled up in rank. And I was like, mm, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but they remember. It's like, they, 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 they don't forget because of the role that you play there. And that also kind of hits you psychologically too, because it's like, dang, you don't really like, intentionally try to forget those people but i've worked I, you know the civilians they remember and they were like they always say you remember a face you know that there's a face that you will always remember and apparently i had that one and uh i remember uh there was a and this is kind of like the same thing and this also kind of hits a side psychological thing too i was uh 2000 was it 2000 it was the last one 2013 uh in afghanistan and Kandahar, they have like a parade and and basically every uh, like, I'll say like village or whatever they they display their their flag. You know every every like town, city, village, you know uh, type of uh, heritage name has a, a flag and they display. Well, that's like a, a peace zone. And Taliban was the same. It was the same way. They had theirs is the white flag, um, and we were trying to get through. Uh, just trying to navigate through that mess because we had the big old MRAP, so we had big old vehicles trying to get through. And I hopped on the ground to walk through to try to get out, and I bumped into a Taliban guy on the ground. And uh, we bumped into each other, and we looked at each other, and my gunner was in the hatch, and then they had a female up in their vehicle holding the flag. I look at her, and she's looking at me, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and we're like, close to close like like this close like face to face and he just looks at me and goes not today and i was like okay not today he extended his hand we shook hands and then we went about our business but i didn't take my eye off his ass though because i knew that he don't won't forget a face so as he was walking i was kind of walking looking at him going and he was looking at me and once i got in the vehicle my guys were like chief what the hell was that and i was like hey he said not today, you know, and I think about that today, you know, and it's like, what could have happened if I would have just went like medieval and just took him out right there, you know, like because he was a bad guy. But that set a tone to where actually activity decreased for a little while, you know, so you think about that, like mentally, you know, you're like, OK, so I, I did this, you know, and. I had to tell my platoon sergeant about it and stuff. And they were like, what the heck? And things. And, you know, it was like a big stare down, you know, like it was, it was a lot. And that's like mentally exhausting in itself. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I figured I'd share that one. So that way maybe you can compile on that from the psychology aspect and, and hit it. Well, it's, it's interesting that you're bringing that up actually, because one of the unique things that I have found. And so I do have to clarify, by the way, that everything I share in this is solely from my perception in my opinion it's not any views of anyone else so i want to make sure that i throw that out there but from my own experiences and from my training in those pieces it's an interesting point that you bring up especially because you were talking about the changes that you experienced between deployments and the reason i throw that out there is so my first deployment felt very much like the wild west there, there didn't appear to be many rules or things in place in a lot of ways we were sent to areas where you know, U.S. forces hadn't really been there for quite some time. Um, but my second deployment, by that point, the Hearts and Minds campaign in Afghanistan had kicked in. And so it was very much being very careful, being very mindful of the community interactions that you had and having individuals come up and tell us, hey, don't go down this road. We know there's IEDs there. Yep. And, you know, this is a person that previously when we rolled into certain towns, we knew like this is a hostile town. They're not going to talk to us. They're not going to do these things. And what does that mean? And so it's always important, I think, psychologically, when we're talking about these unique con conflicts, right? So to put this in perspective, again, I'm kind of nerdy with statistics, so bear with me. <laughs> but <laughs> I know, right? Like, sorry. But No, good. These are good. Statistics are always good. So, like, throw those out there so that way people who don't know like on the civilian side and even some veterans can be like, Oh shit. Okay. So we got numbers. Cause you know, we're all about facts, quantifiable results. Quantity doesn't matter, but we want quantifiable, you know, what can you prove to me? So this helps. So go for it. 
Yeah, well, and that's the thing is, so one of the unique things that I find is, so just to put it in perspective, so if you look at veterans as a whole group, so if you look at them and say, okay, veterans are a population or a subculture, if you will, in American society, right? We only account for roughly 18.5 to 19 million individuals total. That's Vietnam, that's Korea, like all of them, plus golf one and golf two. What that actually means is we make up less than 10% of the entire population for all veterans total, right? But what's really fascinating is the fact that when you look at OEF, OIF, OND vets, so this golf error two veteran group, right? So 2001 and beyond, you have a statistically unique sample just with that one crew. And what I mean by that is 3.3 million. That's it. Those 3.3 million have served in two of the longest conflicts in American history by themselves. So only 3.3 million have been at war for 20 years by themselves. And not only have they been at war, they found themselves in a unique position very similar to what we saw with Vietnam. We didn't know who we were fighting for the most part. We experienced a lot of guerrilla style conflict and terror tactics, those pieces. And so many veterans found themselves in this unique position where keep people away, keep distance, right? Separation, treat everyone as the enemy. And then you have these experiences that happen where the guy looks at you and he says, not today. And you have to figure out how to reconcile. What do I do with this? Right. Do I watch my shoulder? Do I turn around and attack first? What do I decide to do? Because the reality is you're probably going to question that decision years later of, well, if I would have done this in the moment, right, what have what would have happened? But also, what does it mean if I didn't do anything? Right. Mm -hmm. I only throw that out there because you almost find yourself in what we call cognitive dissonance. It's a lose lose. Regardless of what happens, you're going to question your decision because it Mm -hmm. has implications one way or the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And it's like, and you know, it, you know, you, when you're, when you deploy a lot of times and even you develop it during your first deployment, you pick up vibes on people. It, it almost seemed like there was an indirect mutual respect. You know what I mean? Because it could have easily went and it didn't, you know, and it was more just like a nod, like, okay, like I may see you again and we'll, we'll be having a different conversation. But right now is uh, this is like a it's like the the DMZ in Korea like it's a neutral zone. It, there's a lot of civilians, you know, and and there there would have been so much collateral damage. Granted, we would have eliminated them because there was four trucks, fifty cows, you know. Yeah, I may have gotten taken out or killed, sure, because I was on the ground, but they wouldn't have walked away for sure. So like you think about all yeah. that, and then even placing like different scenarios and what happens. And I know this happens with a lot of vets. Is well, what if I would have went this way? What if I would have did that? And then now you create an entire scenario that did not happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So you start to compile, okay, well, if I would have just went this way, then this would have happened. And this one, this, and this, and this. And you start building. But then at the same time, like, you have to be like, I can't say that for sure because how do I know that all that would have happened in that order? I can only yes. speculate, you know? So, yeah, so it, and, it's, and that's the, one of the things that a lot of them, and I even still do it. Like, I'll sit there and be like, damn, well, what if I would have just did this? You know, well, they told me not to shoot, but what if I, and a whole, no, like another thing, I had someone in optics 300 meters away. I could have hit him. I got told not to shoot. And I was like, well, what if I would have shot? You know, like, what would have happened? You know, like, and that was during the time where the war shifted to a whole political thing where it's like you had to ask and things, and I got told no. And, and so it was like, now there's that. Well, what if I would have shot? Then I know I could have hit him, but then, well, what if I missed? So then you start coming up with all this stuff, and I think that becomes overbearing on the brain. So, and it does. So one of the unique things I'm going to throw out here as a psychologist is, so I'm trained in what they call cognitive processing therapy, right? And really what that means is we look at stuff just like that, because you're right. We have a tendency to look back at events and experiences, right, and pick them apart. And you've probably heard someone say this at least at one point in time, right? You have seconds to make decisions, but you have a lifetime to pick it apart, right? Mm -hmm. So what cognitive processing therapy actually does, so for veterans who are struggling like you were just laying out, I hope you're listening to me right now and maybe considering this opportunity because we do look at those if-then statements, right? If I had just went left instead of right, then this dude would still be alive, 
right? I should have known. But the reality is, do we know if there's evidence there to know in the first place, right? There was a Mm -hmm. reason you made a decision in that moment to do it. But the reality is over years, you pick it apart, you simplify it, right? You take out all those pieces and it becomes so simple. Yeah, if I had just went right instead of left, then this wouldn't have happened. When in all actuality, if you would have went right, there could have been a daisy chain right there and you just lost your entire squad versus one guy. So cognitive Mm. processing therapy does a lot of work examining what you're telling yourself, how you're doing those things to really start to address, is this something that I have to figure out how to accept and grieve and be sad about? Or is this something that, you know what, I'm not actually being objective here. I might actually have a skewed view because I've told myself this years over years over years, and I'm the only one telling myself. So I'm not taking in any objective evidence, if you will. And so I'm not actually seeing it the way it might have actually happened. It's right. like emotion fueled at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And it's like something I learned, too, is that it was, it's like black and white factual, you know, like unless you can see it 100 percent black and white without a shadow of a doubt. That was something I learned when I went to an inpatient program at a Rush University in Chicago. That was what it was like. It was a it was a, some worksheet that we had. I can't I still have it. I can't remember the name. But one of the things is there is it, it was called like black and white. You know, can I look at this and like reading like a book of law or something? And like, can I look at this and say 100 percent? Like, is this what it is? Can I can I say that? Can I do that? Yes or no. And there's no like, but maybe there's no in between. It's yes or no, because you have to look mm-hmm. at it as when you're dealing with the with the mind and like CPT and stuff like that. It's like it has to be concrete. And like, and that's what I was telling my brother about something else the other day about something. I was like, you can't say that this is happening because you're not there. You know, you, you can't, you can't. And it's the same thing. So if I would have went right instead of left, I can only speculate what would have happened. You know, there could have been a daisy chain. There could have been nothing, but then there could have been an ambush at the end. And that would have been worse. And then you're like, well, dang, I should have went left instead of right. And then now you're doing that. So like when it comes to that, that's why I tell people that's the first thing I say when someone says, oh, they're not doing this or they're thinking this or whatever. I was like, well, OK, hold on. Can you say that they are or not 100 percent? Well, yeah. OK, so are you with them every second of the day watching them minute by minute? Well, no. Well, then you can't say that, can you? You can only speculate and assume. And that is a perfect example, right? So if you think about it for just a second, this is a pin, right? So if you challenge some of these things, you walk in just like you're saying, are my thoughts objective, right? Can I say, Your Honor, this is a pin. I'm going to submit this as evidence, right? If it's not a pin, then you can't actually say it's evidence, right? If you say, I feel a certain way, so this must be true, that's not evidence. That's a feeling, but that's not actually evidence. Evidence would be, I had the intel at this time that suggested I should go left instead of right. I had a gut decision, whatever it was, my learning history was the left patrol or the left road was better than the right road. And you have to be able to take that step back to go, okay, well, this is why I made this decision. Am I struggling with the decision or am I struggling with the result? Right. If I'm struggling with the result, because that's really what we're doing. When we say if then statements, we're really going back and we're trying to say, well, if I went right instead of left, then this wouldn't have happened. Because ultimately what that means is we've changed the outcome. Right. Versus saying, I'm really upset. A word that veterans don't like to use, but I'm really sad that I lost my friend that I served with. I wish this didn't happen. Is very different than I, I put the blame on my shoulders and I want to try to go back and change what happened. Does that right. make sense as I lay that out? Yeah. Yeah. And we try to like carry that burden too. Like, and, and we indirectly carry it. Like, I was fortunate enough not to lose anyone with all the crap that went down through some deployments. I was very fortunate, even being blown up myself in a, in a vehicle, not to lose anyone. So, like, I can't really talk about how mentally tolling that is. I know some people who I've served with who've lost people and I can't imagine what that's like. But um, I know that even still like uh, 
carrying certain things, like even decisions, like in mine was a little different because I went through a dark time after during my transition because it was really hard. And so now I, to put it on a different track, I was now questioning my leadership of how I handled situations and things of like, my rule was, and this, and this was just like, I see as, as a soldier, if we go, all go out the wire, we're all going to come back or we all don't. There is no like leaving no one behind. There's no, we either fight there and die there or we fight and everyone comes back either dead or alive. But if we all die in that spot, we all die in that spot. And that's what it is. And I was fortunate enough to have a, to have a crew that accepted that and embodied that. And they knew what it was and wouldn't question it for nothing. So now as I progress and that's what I teach, yes, I've trained excellent leaders and now they're platoon sergeants and first sergeants and sergeant majors and stuff, you know? So now I'm like, well, shoot, are they going to be like me when I get out completely in disarray? Like, did I just set them up for failure because of how I am now and now everything I went through and what my brain is, what I'm doing to myself? Did I do that to them? So it's like, there's, there's that too, you know? And even though there was no it's, death, it's an interesting it's, point. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, no. I wanted to say like, that's an interesting point because one of the things that I want veterans to hear, right. And I hope they're hearing it from you and I, right. We're veterans as well. So, but one of the things I hope people hear is you can question that right there, that thought pattern of, did I set them up for failure of these pieces? But the reality is, the nature of war is different. The mindset that is required is different. And so some ways, right? I, I told you like my specialties are PTSD, anxiety, depression, moral injury, those pieces. And a lot of times they, they end up being a result of what happens in the military, right? So from those experiences, from those ways you're thinking, these things ultimately come out. But one of the things about that is sometimes the reason that you end up struggling with those things as a civilian is because they were actually really adaptive. They were positive, if you will, when you were overseas. And so the simplest example I can give is if you do lose someone overseas, if you lose your emotional shit in the middle of a combat zone, what happens? Right? Things go Somebody's crazy. Probably going to, yeah, something, something's going to go wrong. And it, unfortunately, if it goes wrong overseas, it's likely that either yourself is going to die, right? You are going to die or what many veterans would view as worse, you're going to end up resulting in someone else's death, right? I lose my emotional stuff. I can't deal because I just lost my friend. And so what veterans learn to do then is they compartmentalize. They take the beach ball, if you will, and they shove it down. No, 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 that's not there right now. I'm going to use my anger. And I'm going to pretend like everything else isn't there. Right. So Mm -hmm. it it was really adaptive at one point. So to, to address that thought pattern, if you will, that you're laying out, were you setting them up for failure outside of the military or were you preparing for them for the job they had to do while they were still in the military? Right. That makes that that always be the same. Yeah. It makes sense. That's a good one. And yeah, I had to have that it's, someone it's explain that to lay me it out in that way. I think. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, right? No, go ahead. I I didn't want to interrupt. Oh no, I, I you got you cut out, so I thought you were done. But I was just gonna say that yeah, no, it is. I've like I've heard it that way, the way you explain it, and then it's like it's something I had to really. It was like a, a hard pill to swallow because like where it's right, and that's what it is. But the internal inside the brain doesn't want to believe it because we get ego, you know, pride. No, I'm right. No, I know what I'm feeling. I know what it is when really it's like, no, like I can't, I can't do that because if they do that, that's, that's them. But I trained them for what was happening at the moment. I needed this mentality. I needed this attitude and this is what I needed so we can be successful. And that led to successful missions, to no injuries, to no casualties, because we had that mindset of go back or not. But we will do that all together. We will either all die together or we will all come home together. There was no in between. And there was people who weren't comfortable with that. You know, it as soldiers, we're not comfortable with that. And I was like, well, then you don't have to come. And they didn't. And that's fine. I didn't hold anything against them. I was like, cool. You know, you can go with someone else. 
you know, but if they, you know, and that, that's just the mentality that I adopted and, and it worked. And I had to swallow that pill of like, dang, okay. So as I had to re rework, especially how you brought it up and talked about what you just said, it was like, oh, so maybe I didn't do that to them. You know, it was, it was for what I needed there to keep, to bring them back. It's just now they got to do the work to not let that affect them when they get out. And that's the challenge, right? Using the hammer in the military because you need a hammer makes all the sense in the world. But when you come out, if the only tool you keep in your toolbox is a hammer, everything better be a nail because if it's not, you're going to struggle, right? Unless you're willing to figure other things out, whether that's therapy or social support people around you, whatever that looks like, if you don't do those things, then you're going to treat everything like you did in the military. The problem with that is, right, in the military, it's that all or nothing, right? We're going to go out. We're all going to bring each other back, take care of each other, and this is how it's supposed to be, or we're not, right? It's either going to be all good or it's going to go all bad, but it's going to happen this way, right? But mm -hmm. the one thing that veterans really struggle with with transition, and I see it a lot, even in my own transition to a degree, was when you come out, not everything's black and white. It's not all or nothing. It's that difficult gray area that you're not used to dealing with. Cause in the military, there's rules, there's regulations, there's um, a, a, a contingency plan for contingency plans. Right. Like mm -hmm. we're out here. You not only felt may feel like your family has been ripped apart to a degree because they got sent to other units or they got out when you got out in those pieces. So all that psychological safety net that you had built in where you were struggling and you know what, maybe I'm going to drink a beer and talk to my buddy or, however you were coping, suddenly you're doing it alone. And mm -hmm. that's, that's something I find with a lot of veterans that they really struggle with, with the transition coming home is not only am I not sure exactly how to manage these things or, you know, translate emotion. I'm mad all the time. I don't, I don't have other stuff going on. I also have to do it alone. There, there's not a lot of social support. And you, that just seems to be what I, I, what I encounter a lot in treatment as well. Right. And it's like, as you think of that, I think of an example of like having, cause you were talking about like, and I felt that too, you know, you deploy and you're with a, a group of people. And I was lucky, like for my deployments, like I was like, and I was in Europe where two of my deployments, but I was able to keep the same squad for over a year and a half in each tour, which is really uncommon, especially being a field artilleryman because of the in and outs. So I was like really lucky to build a good cohesive group with those guys. But it seems like when everybody leaves, you have like a perfect puzzle on a table. And then when it leaves, you just take it and you go, boom, and you just throw the puzzle and it goes all over the place, you know? And that's like, that's the transition of getting out. Like puzzle, gone. And now you're looking at puzzle pieces everywhere. And you're like, what the hell? Because you don't know what to do. Yes, I think that's a perfect point. And I will say, I'm going to maybe bring up a topic. I, I know we haven't really planned this out and stuff. So, but I'll say mm -hmm. this. It's interesting to watch as things unfold after people transition. And so I'll just use my own example. Um, but I'm wondering if other veterans maybe will relate to this. And that is you get out of the military, you start to find your groove. So after that three to six month honeymoon period where everything seems amazing because you're allowed to go do what you want, Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. saying I enjoyed that part. Uh, yeah. But 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 after that period. Right. So a lot of veterans, by the time they hit that six month to a year mark, that's when they start to notice like, oh, I'm really irritable. I'm edgy all the time. I feel super alert. What is this? Um, and so a couple things tend to happen. One is you start to see increased substance use. Um, so. Not only is mental health starting at this point to a degree, um, a lot of veterans really in any given year among our cohorts. Um, so it's about 11 to 20 percent are going to be diagnosed with PTSD and or depression comorbid. So you're going to have pretty significant mental health coming in. But when you really take that a step further um, after that six months to a year mark, you also see really significant climbs in substance use. So not only did veterans have a tendency to use while they were in the service and drink a little bit here or there or those pieces when they get out, but um, when you look at the research in those pieces, it's actually really significant. And when I say really significant, just to put that in perspective, so I've told you how small our group is, 
Mm -hmm. the estimates are anywhere from about 10.6% all the way up to 46.6% of veterans at that six month to a year mark are going to develop some type of substance use disorder, whether that's methamphetamines, heroin, alcohol, um, cannabis to some degree, but that's typically not included in those types of studies. Um, Mm -hmm. But you see a pretty significant increase in substance use. Um, And so one of those two things tends to happen around that mark. But the reason Mm -hmm. I bring this topic up is so when I transitioned home, everything went really well for the most part, like cliche, like, oh, yeah, everything's skippy now. Great. Um, And so it was fine. Um, You know, I was managing. I completed my undergraduate in three years flat, went straight to a master's program, knocked that out as well. Um, And it really took me time to really step back and look at my own pursuits, if you will. And what I mean by that is so veterans go to mental health, they go to substances. Other veterans have a tendency to go to work or school or those things. They dive in very deeply because they're keeping themselves busy, Mm -hmm. right? If you're busy, you don't have time to worry about intrusive thoughts or issues that come up with PTSD or moral injury or those things. Um, The reason I'm telling you this, though, is you will potentially have yourself setbacks that are unanticipated, that are unrelated to you. And so for me, I had three of those setbacks between 2013 ish into 2015. And so the first one ended up being a really close friend of mine that was in my squad ended up dying in the States um, in a motorcycle accident. He was hit by a drunk driver. And so, you know, that loss in and of itself was difficult, but it also started to bring up other losses for me over my two deployments. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was able to manage, I was able to deal, uh, you know, using what I needed to use at the time and still trying to figure out what was kind of going on. Um, Fast forward just a little bit. And I ended up losing one of my roommates um, and a buddy of mine who I deployed on the second deployment with um, to an overdose. Um, And so, you know, I was really struggling with that. I was like, okay, this is, this is a lot. I'm not sure what to do with this. And so ultimately I was like, I'm going to dive deeper into studies. I need to figure out how to fix this. I need to figure out how to take care of my guys. A very similar concept to what we were just talking about when you're overseas. And so that didn't leave me. Um, But really, the walls came crashing down in 2015. Uh, So I I think I told you earlier that I served with my brother and with my twin sister. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I I came back and kind of had my own struggle, but I was doing okay. Uh, My twin found herself in a position where she started going to substances. And that was the way she was coping and dealing with her deployments. Um, Mm. But it was my brother that I didn't anticipate. Um, He was very successful. He had 11 and a half years in the Air Force, was working down in Florida at Cape Canaveral with SpaceX and was really excelling. Um, But in 2015, he completed suicide. Mm. And at that time, the very person who got me in the military and essentially outlined what it meant to serve and how to serve was gone. And I had to, I had to figure out what to do with that. And so I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I had already been accepted into the doctorate program and I significantly considered whether or not to continue. Um, there was a part of me that had determined at that point, it may not be advantageous for me to continue to try to work with veterans at all. Um, because I could not, I could not manage. I could not maintain. I had the summer off. I fell into a deep depression myself. I couldn't manage. Um, I found myself in very much similar situations that we're talking about related to stuck points. Um, So those if-then statements, those pieces of trying to go back and figure out how I could change it and also realizing that I couldn't. And so for many veterans out there, you may find yourself in that position where some of these experiences happen. And after they happen, you realize that war doesn't end that this stuff will continue. And if you're not okay, what are you going to do with it? Because it's not going anywhere. And for me, I think, like I said, I worked really hard. I stayed really busy. I used some alcohol from time to time here and there just to manage and cope. But it was that moment that it hit me so hard that this wasn't going away. This is here. And we know the statistics. I don't have to throw those out there. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that I hear the argument all the time about 22 veterans a day and how accurate that statistic is. Um, I will say that they replicated that study in 2018 and found that it was still at 21.5. Um, so we are losing veterans at an astronomical rate. Uh, to put that in a ballpark, just to clarify, mm-hmm. one in five suicides in the United States total. So all we only make up less than 10% of the population, but one in five veterans right? One in five individuals, I should say, in the United States who completes a suicide will be a veteran, even though we're such a small group. And so, so that is one thing that I, I really wanted to kind of bring up, because like I said, it's one of those things I have struggled with, but also I see veterans who are really doing well. They're excelling, they're succeeding, everything seems mm-hmm. to be good. And then they have a loss or they have some of these things that happen. And suddenly everything that they thought was okay comes right back like it's never been gone. So I don't know if that's been one of your experiences or not. I know you've talked to many people who have struggled in those ways, um, but mm-hmm. that's been one of the experiences as a as a psychologist, but also as a veteran myself. I've seen. Yeah, and and it is, and then you also try to you also try to do things to kind of mask it. You like, oh, let me do this. Let me go get a car. Let me go get a house. Let me, you try to materialize and be materialistic to try to push down that stuff. And then for a while it buys through and it works. But then like how you said, something happens and it just seems like all that stuff doesn't matter. And now it's an overflowing cup. Now water's coming out the sides and it's just, it's, it's a, it's under a faucet and it's leaking everywhere, you know? And you're like, what the heck? I thought I was good. I thought I was okay. And it's, it's not. And sometimes, unfortunately, in order to deal with stuff, you need stuff to happen, you know, because it's just, it's, it's something that just hasn't surfaced. You know, like, and and unfortunately, there's, in my opinion, there's no way to take care of that stuff because, yeah, like, you know, it's there, but you can try to work on it. But unless something happens, then you won't really know the full impact. Now, I'm not saying go try to initiate something to bring up things like go look for something. But there's just some things that can only be fixed when something happens. And that's unfortunate because, and that's just to me, that's just the way the mind works. Like, yeah, you got it, and you can do stuff. You can be better prepared for when something happens, so that way, just you know, everything's not crashing down. But uh, and then, but that's just my opinion on it when it comes to something like that. And I know for me personally, like I thought things were okay, and then all of a sudden, nope, boom, it was not okay. And I went through a really, really dark time, and I spoke about it in one of those. Things I did before when I shared my story with things um, where I went through the the PTSD, the toxic marriage, the arrest, the probation, the veterans court, like just all the stuff that came along with that. And it was like, what the heck? You know, like and you you think you're good. You're at the bottom of the of the dark hole. And you're like, OK, let me just get up. And when you go to get up, you slip and now you fall some more and you're like falling. And you're like, well, I thought I was at the freaking bottom, you know. And then I, I for me, I realized that. The bottom only stops when you realize that enough is enough. Then you hit the bottom and there's no more cliff. And now you just go up. You may not have a light up there at the moment because you're really far down, but go up and you will you will eventually see a light. And as you start to see a light and you start to climb up, right, then you'll start seeing that support that you had the entire time, but you just let your ego and your pride shield you and put you like tunnel vision like this, like they're going to the range with the range fans, only this much, you know, no left or right. You're just like this. But as you're going up the tunnel or the hole, you start going like this and you're going and you're going and you're going. Now you're starting to see more. Oh, they are there to help me there. My parents are there. My brother's there. I have a good, I have a good woman now. Like, I've, I've a, I'm in a healthy relationship and the fans start to open, you know, and I, yeah, now I, I just don't go trusting everybody because now trust has to really be worked on and earned because of being burned and falling. Yeah. But as you go up, then now it's like, okay, the light's there. Oh, there it is. And now you're like, oh, shoot. Okay. Let me keep going. And yeah, you'll slide down a couple of times because life isn't perfect. You'll miss a rock and you'll slide a little bit, but you've been climbing so much, you know, where rocks are, you know, where ledges are, you know, your placement and how to move up. And then eventually you climb out. Me personally, I'm not out yet. I'm I'm still going. I got a big old light up there now. I know I'm getting there. A couple of slides down, but I'm getting there. And I just, you know, then 
and you know, I think once you fully get there, then you know, then you can be like, huh, okay, cool. Maybe I won't. Now I'm not just gonna fall down the hole. Now I'm just gonna be fighting outside of it, you know, trying not to go back in, and then just fighting everything on the outside and just kind of getting knocked on the ground versus falling in the hole. Yeah, and that I think sense. that's a good analogy because reality is I use a beach ball a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. No, go, go. I was I was just gonna say that one of the things one of the things that I use a lot is I use a beach ball analogy. But it's really true. So for for veterans out there who are debating whether or not they should seek care, those types of things, first of all, I hope you hear that there are providers like me that get it. There are also providers who have no military service, but have dedicated years and years and years to try to understand and want to help. And so I hope that you guys hear that. But also, you know, I use this beach ball example because the reality is many of us, right, you look like a big guy. If I said, could you take a beach ball and shove it under the water, right? Like, call me crazy, (laughs) but I'm putting my money on you, (laughs) right? Like, I think you could do that. But but that's exactly what mental health is, right? So mental health is, I remember being in boot camp, right? The cotton balls, right? You'd have these muscle-bound dudes, just Jack Diesel guys, and they'd hand them these cotton balls and be like, hold it out for a minute and just hold it there. And they would hold it, and they would hold it. And they would hold it. And eventually you look over and this big Jack Diesel guy, his arms start shaking. It's a cotton ball, right? Mm-hmm. Just like a beach ball. You all are big. You can do your thing. You can shove this stuff down and pretend like it's not there. You're really good at that. The problem is eventually your arms get tired. Eventually you get wore down. The people in your life get tired of trying to support you and you pretend like you don't have a problem. And so what happens is that ball flies out somewhere, but it's not controlled. You, you mm-hmm. don't know where it's going to go. It's just coming out. It may come right up in your face. It may hit somebody else that you didn't intend to send it that way. And suddenly, you know, you're like, I don't know what happened to my marriage. I don't know why my kids are afraid of me because I punched a hole through the drywall. Right. And mm-hmm. so what do you do? You immediately grab that stuff and you tuck it back under the water again. And you apologize. Like, I don't, I don't want to ever have that come out and affect anybody else. This is my stuff. I'm going to shove it back down and it's done. I'm not going to mess with it. But eventually your arms will get tired again. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's true. And so, go ahead. No, no, I just the saying that's true. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hard for me, I think, when I think about how many veterans. So one of the things, if, if you all ever want a good resource, to look at to really understand the difficulty that veterans can present. Um, there's a, there's an article, it's called Combat Paradox. And the article essentially writes out all these different issues that, that veterans come up with that they may not be aware of, but they present with them. And so like one of them, for example, I wrote it down here just so I would remember it. Um, it's called the silence paradox, right? And so essentially what it says is no one understands what it's like while they also hold the exact same belief that I don't want to talk about it. Right. It's an oxymoron. One of those silence paradox. It's exactly what it is, right? I need to get this out of my head. I don't even know how to say or describe it. Right. And so what happens is that's how veterans get stuck. They, They don't move on. Right. Like I, served my time. I was honorable. I was courageous. I was strong. If I seek help, that's a sign of weakness. And so they build those barriers without even realizing they're building them. And so they just shove the ball under the water because that's what they've done. And at one point in time, that was effective when you were overseas because you didn't have mm -hmm. time to deal with what was under the water, but you're not overseas anymore. And so when you're home, if you don't, deal with those things, right? If you use the same coping skills that you use that worked in the past, they're probably not going to work today. And so that's one that, like I said, I think it's a great resource. It really brings awareness to multiple issues um, that we as veterans as a whole kind of do. And I'll own, I've, I've been in that boat at one point. So I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's, there's no problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've talked about that a little bit as well, right? So it's one of those things where you have to really be honest with yourself first. And then once you're honest, 
Are you willing to put in the work to actually deal with it? Or do you just shove it back down? Right. And, and I think one of the things, too, is that when someone says, oh, I'm doing all right, that to me, that's like the hold on. You're doing all right. Or oh, I'm doing OK. Doing OK. What's going on? Like we indirectly tell on ourselves it don't even know it, you know, because I, I even do it sometimes. My fiance would be like, hey, what's going on? Are you doing, what's going on? Are you OK? Yeah, I'm all right. And she just goes, what's going on? What's happening? You know, because like we, 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 we can't help it. We tell on ourselves either with our face or our micro expressions or our body language. And even if we try to mask it all up or is it, oh, I'm good. Okay. Now you just spoke high pitch. What's wrong? You know, that's when someone really knows you, you know what I mean? So it's like, we indirectly tell on ourselves. So it's like, if you have a buddy for people watching, if you got a buddy and you ask me, hey, what's going on, man? How you been? Oh, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah. So what's been going on? Don't automatically assume something's wrong. Have them elaborate on it or her. Have them elaborate on what's all right. You know, because they could just potentially be all right and kind of just coasting through, you know. And if they get really detailed about stuff, then it's like, okay, maybe they're doing okay. Or they're just over explaining to kind of push it off so that way they don't be a burden. Because that's what I used to do. I don't. I didn't want to be a burden to with my problems for someone else because I know everyone has lives and I didn't want to be an issue. So I was like, oh, I'm good. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm, I'm straight. Yeah, it's all good. Just dealing through stuff. And there you go. It's a beach ball. I'm good. I'm okay. Nah, man, it's all good. Boom. And then it comes out. Something happens. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly, though. You're absolutely right. Like, and it's, it'll honestly, like, it's one of those things like you don't plan on the beach ball coming out, right? Like, those things kind of come out of you're like oh i thought i had it yeah and for those who like oh i can do it take you <laughs> take you take your freaking candy ass to a pool with a beach ball and go try to hold it down sit on it or lay on it and watch what the hell happens because as a kid i tried to do it and you're either going to tumble in the water the ball's going to flop out or whatever but that ball is going to come out whether you want it or not it's going to pop out the water and who knows like how doctor here said it's either going to go this way or that way. It's going to pop you in the face. You don't know what's going to happen, but that ball will not stay under there. And the only way you're going to get rid of that ball is if you face the stuff, get your knife, and you friggin' pop it, and then there's no more ball. Then you start making tracks with progression. Mm -hmm. There you go. So, right. so I'm going to ask you just to, you know, I have some other areas I could go, but I just want to, I'm aware of kind of the time, so. Do you have anything in particular that you have questions on? I know we've kind of talked about a bunch of different things through this talk um, that I could address for you during this during this podcast. Hmm. Um, looking at the time here, we've got about mm, 10 minutes. So I think one would be, I think, is uh, if you can elaborate really quick on. If I had to put one, it would probably be like maybe the the barriers on reaching out. Cause I think that's a huge one for like asking for help, like saying like, Oh, Hey man, I need to talk or, or even if it's a, your friend's a girl or something, or, Hey, what's going on? I need to talk. You know, you're the only person I can go to, but getting over that hump of actually asking for help, because I think that's the biggest thing is the pride in asking for help or even calling the hotline. I've called the crisis hotline before. And you know what? I spoke to a lady on there and she had to be from like the South because like, she had that like swaggish attitude and like accent and like, but you know what? I appreciated that though, because she kept it level and she kept it real. And she actually talked me down. It was like two and a half, three years ago. And she, she was legit. I don't remember her name, but she was like, no, now look here, Eric, what you're thinking about is just craziness. Let me tell you why. And she was very, very slang with it, but it related to me and it worked. So like that, that veterans crisis hotline is legit. So if you can take a few minutes and just highlight how to jump over that barrier, I think then we can close it up. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, so first of all, just because you were on the crisis line, I will say you don't have to be in crisis to call the crisis line. So you don't have to be suicidal or homicidal. Like you can call the crisis line and literally just talk. That's what mm -hmm. it's there for. So First of all, I just love the fact that you use that because that's exactly what it's there for, right? Um, but to go back to your point, so barriers to care in those pieces, 
there's there's a couple things that really pop up. Um, I had this and I didn't know if I would share it because it's honestly it's a pretty stout statement. Um, but sometimes I think that it's helpful for veterans to hear the experience of another veteran, um, especially when it comes to the reality of what it means to get help or not. And so, you know, one of the things about veterans as a whole is they have a tendency, right? If you want to picture how they're doing as a car, adapt and overcome all these different adages, right? Embrace the suck, da 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 right? Y'all drive the road and the engine's knocking, like the car's not running well, and you just keep pushing on. It's the greatest strength I think veterans have is I don't think there's anything for anybody watching this podcast that I don't think you could get through if you wanted to get through it. Because it mm-hmm. seems as though regardless of who I talk to when it comes to veterans, they have the unique ability to rise above and get through things. The problem comes when they just get through their life, right? When you're not enjoying life, when you're not doing things in a way that actually means something that, you know what, my life is basically done. I'm just, I'm just a to B to C and it just is what it is. And so, you know, a lot of times I think about that and I think about, so there's a guy that um, I originally read about him. And his name was Noah Pierce. I don't know if that name sounds familiar or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, his story is something that just tore me up. Um, I think in some ways because it, it put on, it put on paper what we don't see a lot of times with statistics. So we've talked about eighteen to twenty-two veterans a day, but in all actuality, I don't think it means anything to anybody anymore. It's Mm -hmm. become a statistic that we're so accustomed to. You see it printed on T-shirts. You see all these pieces, but we almost lose sight of what it actually means. And so Mm -hmm. at one point, I actually did a video um, where I wrote out and I factored in. And ultimately, you know, there's roughly over 8,000 individuals die each year, veterans, by suicide. That's the actual statistic, right? What that really equates to is you're essentially knocking out every national sport in one year. So all your NBA players, all the NFL, all the MLB, they're all gone. If you factor in how many veterans we're actually losing, that's what that is. Um, but, but anyway, so Noah Pierce was one of those guys that, like I said, when I read his story and I finally had the chance to talk to his mother, it really hit home that I don't think veterans realize what they put other people through when they don't deal with this stuff. So to, yeah. to give you all a backstory on Noah Pierce, because his mother really likes to have his story put out there in a way that helps other veterans. And so Noah was in the U.S. Army, right? I'm not going to hold that against him. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but I know, right? But, but ultimately, Noah, he ended up writing a letter to his mother. Um, he put it on an index card, the back of a card, and, and he stabbed it on the dashboard of his vehicle um, before he took his life. And so ultimately the, the letter, it read like this, like I said, I wasn't sure if I was going to share it or not, but we've crossed that barrier at this point. And so <laughs> for any veteran out there struggling or thinking about struggling, think about this for just one second that was left to his mother. It was, it, this is what it says. Mom, I am so sorry. My life has been hell since March of 2003 when I was a part of the Iraq invasion. I am freeing myself from the desert once and for all. I am not a good person. I have done bad things. I have taken lives. Now it's time to take mine. Those were the last words that Noah's mother got from Noah. And it's one of those things where if he had had the opportunity to reach out, if he'd had the chance to be able to talk to someone who would understand and get it, I wonder if he would have continued down that road and made that decision the way that he made that decision. I wonder if he would have had kids. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he would have been happy. And so when I read that story, I really think about what it means to struggle with mental health, what it means to take your life, what it means to find yourself in these unique positions where you feel all alone when there are veterans out there, just like me and you who are saying, you know what? You're not alone. 
it feels that way because the family that you had in the military isn't there anymore. But there are other veterans out there. There is more family to be had if you make that climb. If you get to the top of the hole, like Eric was just talking about, you may find yourself in a unique position where not only are you not alone, you find yourself in a, in a way where you can actually live your life and enjoy it. I think many veterans who struggle with mental health and those types of things, they find themselves in a unique position where they feel like a burden, right? They, they don't want to reach out and help. I should be able to handle this. I should be able to deal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to adapt and overcome. I'm going to embrace this act. I'm going to push on and just get through this. But the reality is you just kick that can down the road. You don't actually take the opportunity to deal with this stuff. And so it doesn't leave you. Eventually you get down the road and that can is still there. And I think for a lot of veterans, that's what we find is they feel like this stuff doesn't go away. And so they want to get rid of it, but they don't know how. And they keep trying to do it alone. So that would be the one thing that I see so much in treatment right? The, the, the whole mentality of weakness and, you know, those pieces related to the military culture. But the reality is it's a whole hell of a lot harder to come to treatment and talk about and deal with this stuff than it is to pretend like it's not a problem. The biggest thing I'll tell guys that are watching this video. So men, women, all you all out there who've been through this stuff, you've already lived through it. Going into treatment and dealing with these things, You weren't alone when this stuff developed. You shouldn't be alone fighting with it now. And so that's one of the biggest issues that I see is you're stronger than you give yourself credit for. But you don't even see that piece because you possibly don't even feel like you're the same person you used to be. When in all actuality, you're both. You're just dealing with stuff that you've been dealing with for a really long time. And everybody needs to be able to figure out how to set the pack down at some point, at least for a little while. And unpack it just a little bit. Make it lighter. Because you're always going to remember. But it doesn't have to be in a way that holds you back. I know one of the things that I talk about a little bit in a different video from my stuff is the difference between honoring and punishing. Right? And so when we lose people or we, we struggle with some of these experiences, how do you honor those experiences versus punishing yourself and holding yourself back? Instead of finding yourself in this unique position where you stop living, you start living for them. You start finding a way to make others proud of you, especially for those individuals that would die over again, just to have the opportunity to be with you or to move forward with you. And so that's one unique thing that it's part of the barriers, but it's also, uh, it's a unique challenge for each one of these viewers and everybody out there is you are stronger. You've lived through this stuff. Reach out. Get some help. Don't do it alone. This is exactly why we do these podcasts. Um, I don't know if that all made sense because I kind of rambled there. I got a little on my yeah. soapbox, but <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's good. That, that's that's perfect. And as it comes to a close here, because there's a couple minutes left, uh, that that right that bat usually asks for like a closing to kind of do something, but I think that speaks in itself. And I think the primary message, and I've, I've never heard it, so I kind of just threw it in my own. And it, I, just to leave it is with you didn't go alone to combat. You went with a group of people and you fought together. So why the hell do you think you need to fight this battle alone after combat when you did it with people? Do it with people now. Yeah. Because you did it before and you were strong enough to do it then. So now do it again, except with help instead of by yourself. So I think that was that was perfect. I so I kind of just took that. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, no, no, okay, I, I I've got one quote. Go for it. <laughs> well, I always, always like to leave off with this one. And when I say always, I've, I've used this quote once before, but I hope this makes sense. So mental health wise, as a last sign off, if you will, um, I love Douglas MacArthur. Uh, his quotes, I don't know why, I just <laughs> do. It's yeah. a thing. Um, but I think about mental health as a battle. And it's one in which you're not always trying to win. You're just trying to advance, right? But one Mm -hmm. of the things Douglas MacArthur really hammers is he says, it is fatal to enter a war without the will to win it. The reality is with mental health, if you are not willing to fight and put in the energy, effort, and motivation and use the supports and the people around you and realize you're on a team, you will fail. You will struggle. 
you will not succeed. And so you all are better than that. We know you're better than that. We're here to be on the same team. Right. I think that's a perfect way to close it up, man. Well, I appreciate everybody for watching. I appreciate Tim for coming on here and sharing some knowledge. And I will see everybody next week with our next guest. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Take care.